Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Boy, I'm loving spending time with you. This has been a wonderful, wonderful experience, and I appreciate the way that you've made Beverly and I feel very welcome here. We thank you for that. You have great ministers on this in this congregation, every single one of them are outstanding. And then you have wonderful elders. I, I've met deacons that I didn't even know were deacons until later, but they're all friendly. I have found everybody in this church to be open and friendly. And I thank you. You've made us feel at home here, and we truly, truly appreciate that. We're going to talk about opening our eyes to hindrances. We've talked about opening our eyes to all sorts of things, but today opening our eyes to hindrances for this lesson. And I want to tell you there's so many things that I want to say that I've, I've made rather extensive notes here, and I use them every once in a while, but uh, I, I don't want to be really tied down to my notes, but I want them to help us keep on track. I'm reminded of the guy who kept notes on everything. He finished speaking one time, and an obviously irate member of the church met him in the back and said, have you ever been to Chicago, Illinois? And he said, I don't know. And he got out his phone and he starts going through and he said, let's see, places I have been, place, yes, yes, I've, I've been to Chicago, Illinois. He said, did you meet a woman there by the name of Susie Smart? He said, I don't know. Let me check. People I have met, people I have met. Let's see. Yes, yes, I've, I've met Susie Smart. He said, did you kiss her? He said, I don't know. Let me look. <laughs> girls, girls I have kissed, girls I've. Y yes, I, I did kiss her. He said, well, she's my wife and I don't like it. He said, likes and dislikes. <laughs> no, I didn't like it either. I just, I, I think you can get a little too carried away with your notes. I don't want to do that. But, but I hope that it'll keep us on track and keep us on time this morning and help us to, to get to the point. Did you know that there is in the average congregation, in most congregations, a life cycle? And I've watched it happen in congregation after congregation. And, and I want you to think about where you are in that life cycle of the average congregation. Most congregations start with a man. A man with a vision, with a dream, with a fire in his heart for God, and he just can't be quiet about it. He wants to make sure that everybody in the world knows about Jesus. He wants to make sure that everybody he knows has a chance to go to heaven. He's so excited about it that he does it all day and all night. He doesn't take count of hours or anything else. It's not a job. It's a life. He, he's excited about it. And what happens is that that man begins to convert people that are around him. And, and then the people that are around him get excited about it too and catch fire like he did. And what began as a man becomes a movement. 
where people are all loving each other. They are excited about the work. They're thankful that they've been saved. They think that everybody in the world needs to know about it. They love each other. They spend time with each other. They do things for the lost. They do all that they can to bring as many people as they can to the cause of Christ. That movement is is a powerful thing, and congregations that are in that are happy and growing and and becoming, and it's it's a wonderful thing. But that goes on for a while, and then somebody who is more of an accountant type among them, says all of this is fine and good, but we're not very well organized. The fact of the matter is that there are people who are slipping through the cracks. We really need people not to do that. If we're going to really make this work, we're going to have to organize this into programs and ministries and make sure that we don't miss anybody. And so, for all the right reasons, they begin to become more organized with what they're doing, and they do have programs and ministries that are meeting the needs of people both inside and outside the church. But what happens is that after a time, those ministries are such well-oiled machines that they run themselves. People are in them, they have a set of rules, they know what they're supposed to do, they do it, and a generation goes by, and, and people are still having those ministries still fulfilling those programs, but nobody remembers why we started them. They're all going on, and they're good, and they're organized, and we've got everybody doing something, but nobody's really sure why. And what started out as a man that became a movement suddenly becomes a machine, and it just runs itself. We know what we want to do. We have a policy set out. We've decided this is the direction that we're going to go, and things go on and on. And so it becomes this finely oiled machine, and the church is organized in a, in a powerful way to do great work. But what happens with the machine is that when people forget why those programs are there, why those ministries are taking place, they're doing them without the life that started that congregation in the first place. And ultimately, because it is a machine, it begins to wear out. Ultimately, because it's a machine, things aren't moving with the excitement. Things aren't moving with the joy that they did somewhere before when it was a movement. And people who've been there for a long time remember back to the good old days, and they remember what it was like when everybody was excited and everybody sacrificed and everybody loved, and they put whatever they had on the line to make sure that it grew, and they said, you know, we aren't quite like that anymore. We need to remember those great people who made possible that. We need to honor them in some way. So out in the foyer, they're going to put all kinds of memorabilia about the people who made this church great. They're going to talk about how wonderful it was that they had such great preachers, their tremendous heritage and the difference that they've made in the world, and they begin to celebrate that. They make the church into a memorial. The problem with the memorial is that give it a generation, and that's a mausoleum. And the church wonders, what in the world happened to us? What happened to us in that excitement in the beginning? And generally what's going to happen then is that there will be some young person who gets sick and tired of church politics and everything being done the way it always has been done. And he steps out with a dream in his heart, a fire in his bones, and he begins all over again and becomes that man who changes things and starts a movement again. In every congregation, if you're not careful, that's the progression from man to movement to machine to memorial to mausoleum. I wonder where in that process the Buford congregation is. I would like for you to think about it. And I want to tell you something else. None of this is inevitable. 
As soon as a congregation realizes that it's headed in the direction that's messing us up from what we were supposed to be, it's possible to turn that around. It's possible to make a difference in turning that around. In order to do that, I have to get refocused on the things that are important, on the things that really matter. When it comes to this congregation, when it comes to me individually, I have to remember what it is that matters. And what matters is not what everybody expects out of me. What matters is not what everybody else has always done. What matters is what does God want? And what's his dream for my life? And what's his dream for Buford, Georgia? What is his dream for this congregation? I need to get back with his dream and not with mine. I need to figure out what it is that he intends for me to do. We're either going forward or we're standing still or we're falling behind. That's kind of the way it is in life in general. It's true particularly in our spiritual life. I don't want to settle down and get comfortable and say, okay, this is the routine and so we show up. I hear every once in a while people talk about these are our regular Sunday services as though there's something kind of ordinary about it. There are no really regular services. This is the place where God showed up, guys. This is the place where Jesus Christ is walking in and out of pews, looking for hearts that are right with him. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst of them. We are a people who have this amazing heritage, but more than that, this amazing presence. We are here today in the presence of the God who spoke and the world came into existence. He's the God who split the waters of the Red Sea, knocked down the walls of Jericho for Joshua. He's the God who healed the sick, raised the dead, and made the sun stand still. He's the God who knows every hair on every head and knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He's a God who will one day speak and the world will be destroyed by fire. And He is our God. And our God has not lost one ounce of His power. And He can do anything that He wants to do. Anything, guys, anything that God wants to do, He can do. Somebody said, I thought the age of miracles was past. Who told you that? Can I just tell you, God no longer performs miracles through human agency, but God hasn't limited himself at all. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, because he's God and he's here right now. Do you know what that means this morning? It means that anything can happen. Right here, anything can happen. Because we're the people of God. If I get that, what a difference it will make. I do not count myself already to have attained, Paul said, or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold on him, on that for which he laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, stretching forward to the things that are before, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You and I are stretching out. We're in a run and it is a long-distance run. The finish line for some of us is fairly close, and none of us know exactly where that is. But the picture Paul gives here is of a runner who is leaning forward, stretching with everything that he has, looking to that finish line and saying, I'm not stopping till I get there. Marshall Keeble was probably the greatest gospel preacher in the Churches of Christ in the 20th century. In his lifetime, he personally baptized 40,000 people. He was an amazing, amazing man. 
When he got older, he developed a heart condition, and so he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, Brother Keeble, he said, you're going to have to stop holding all these meetings. You're going to have to slow down. You're not going to be able to do what you used to do. I love his answer. He said, when God is ready for me to quit, he'll let me know. Can I tell you that when God is ready for us to quit, you'll know it, he will let you know. But it's not time to quit just yet. We're stretching out. We're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is it that we need to be doing, and what is it that may be keeping us from doing it? Can I tell you there are some challenges that the Buford Church of Christ has to accept? There are some challenges that every congregation of God's people has to accept. The first of those is, you and I, as individuals and as a congregation, have to accept the challenge of making a difference in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God didn't put you here just to blend in. God didn't put this congregation here just so everything could go along as normal. He put us here as light and salt. He put us here to make a difference. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that he may, we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are here to proclaim praises. And God lives in the praises of his people. People get changed when the church is the church. God put us here to make a difference in the world. I know how we sometimes think. It is, oh man, please don't let the world eat us up. You're the light of the world. When did the darkness ever have more power than the light? Never, and it never will. You are the light. Darkness can't kill you. Darkness can't snuff you out. You snuff out the darkness. We are the people of God, and it's time we recognize who we are. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. As much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, you and I are here to make a difference in the world. God put us here to make a difference in the world. And by the way, we're the only plan He has. You know that. That, that He didn't send angels down to change the world. And he didn't decide to stay here after his resurrection to change the world. He left his people behind. And in that imaginary scene in heaven when the angels say, what are you going to do to make the world a better place? He said, I've left 12 men back there, and they're going to convert people, and they're going to change the world. And they said, what if they fail? He said, I don't have another plan. This is my plan. You and I are here to change the world. Here's the second thing that is a challenge that I think you and I have to accept. We have to accept the challenge of evangelizing our community. God didn't just put us here to make a difference in the world, but to save people out of the world. You and I are in the world. If you read, if you read the prayer of Jesus that he had with his disciples in John chapter 17, it's an interesting prayer. He said, these are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We are not of the world. We belong to a different country. 
We are citizens of heaven. But he didn't take us out of the world. He said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. I have sent them into the world. For what reason? To bring more people out of the world, that's why. To bring more people into citizenship with heaven. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples of all the nations. It's what we do. I find it interesting that no matter where I've gone in the world, I've found Coca-Cola. Everywhere I've gone, I've found Coca-Cola. Do you know, you know what they say and the reason you find Coca-Cola everywhere? They have a motto at Coca-Cola. It says, think globally, act locally. Think about the whole world. Everybody needs a Coke. The pause that refreshes. Everybody needs a Coke. But we can't ignore every village, every township, every city, everyone. And they make it a focus. They think globally. We're here to change the world. We change the world starting in Buford. We change the world starting in our family. We change the world starting with the change that happens in our hearts. You and I must accept the challenge to evangelize the world. David said long ago something that I think there are people all around you who are thinking. No one cares for my soul. Buford Church of Christ needs to let the community know, yes, there are people who care for your soul, and it's us. And we're here for you. We're here for you because we love you. We're going to be your friend no matter what. Somebody says, but I don't even know how to go about starting doing this. I don't know. Well, I want to tell you, Ben can help you with that. He's got some great ideas. And, I, and, I, and I, if you have questions, ask Ben. Or just find an old salt here who converts people. But more than anything else, just get started. It, it's a really simple thing. It's a really, let me give you just one example. Here's a person you've been working with, or maybe you've been playing golf with, or maybe they're an next-door neighbor, and, and y'all have mowed each other's lawns and cared for each other over the years. And one day you just say, you know what? I've really never thought to ask you this question. But are you a Christian? And if they say yes... How about doing this? How about saying, can you tell me a little about that? Can you tell me when that happened? How old were you? Where did it happen? Can, can you tell me how it happened? Were you at church? Were you at home? Were you baptized back then? Or did you just have some kind of experience? What was that like for you? And if he says, I really don't want to talk about it, then you say, well, that's fine. Just remember, we're always going to be friends, but I'll probably ask you again later. And then let it go and stay friends. But if he tells you, then ask him, is it okay with you if I tell you what happened to me? How that happened to me? And if he says, no, I don't want to hear it, say, well, that's okay. Just remember, we're always going to be friends, and I'll probably tell you later. Wherever you go, always leave them as friends, but keep that door open. Always keep that door open to share that message. You'll be surprised the difference it will make if you'll just open the door. If you'll start, as we talked about earlier this week, if you will start right now, today, praying for God to bring people into your life that you can bring closer to Jesus, before seven days are out, there will be so many people you won't know what to do with them all. They will be all around you everywhere. And all you have to do is ask God to help you see them because they're there. We have a challenge here. We have a challenge to evangelize our community and our area. There's a third challenge 
that I think that you and I must face and accept. And that is the challenge of developing leaders. We spend a lot of time in, in the church picking our preachers. We want to make sure we get the right guys. We need to spend a lot more time picking our elders. We need to spend a lot more time picking our deacons. We need to be developing leaders. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2? 2? The things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. We're in a constant process of developing the next generation. It's who we are. It's what we do. I want to tell you something else. This is, this is my opinion. And I don't normally preach my opinion, but this is my opinion. Many of the problems that we have in the church today in places around our country where women are seeking positions of leadership in the church, that is happening because men have abdicated their leadership in the church. Because men in our society began to apologize for being men. And I'm not asking you to be a chauvinist. I'm not asking you to be a person who just thinks that you're the most special thing on earth. But guys, God gave men the responsibility to be leaders in your home, in the church, wherever you are. He intends for you to be a leader. I'm asking you not to bow to the pressure of our society that when you admit that you're a man, somehow there's something shameful about that. That when you admit that you're a man and you're pretty glad about it, that you don't have to bow your head and say, man, I'm sorry I just said that. It's okay to be a man. It's okay to stand up. It's okay to be a leader. And can I tell you something else? Most of your wives would love it if you were. I'm just telling you, people are looking for men to stand up and be leaders. It's time for us to be developing those men. Developing them in the church, developing them in our home. Here's the next thing. The challenge the church must accept is the challenge that we follow the Word of God. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. Don't add to it or take away from it. That's Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. And you can find it repeated in one form or another in Proverbs chapter 30 and again at the last book of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 22. We need to be people rooted in the book. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. When we don't do that, Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you'll find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. If we're going to grow, we're going to have to be the Lord's church, rooted in the Word of God, rooted in to obedience of the Word of God. I read this some time ago and I love it. It says, this is the Lord's church. It's composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do a great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I'm generous. It will bring others into fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. 
It will be a church of loyalty, of love, of faith, and of service if I make it what it is and I'm filled with these things. So let each one of us dedicate ourselves to be the person that God intended for the church to be. To be that kind of person. What is it that keeps us from doing that? You know, you and I are a body of Christ. All the members are different, had different functions, but they all are one body. When any part of the body doesn't function according to the way that it should, the whole body suffers as a result of that. There's a lot of things that I like to do, some of them that Beverly won't let me do. But I can tell you that uh, I love motorcycles, and I love riding motorcycles, and Beverly will never let me on another one. But I was, I was riding on a motorcycle one day when it was too cold to actually be out riding on one and hit an oil slick. The thing started sliding sideways, and when I tried to straighten it up, it hit a hard spot, and it just flipped me off the bike. It broke most of my ribs on this side, gave me a concussion, broke my thumb in about 100 places, and uh, Beverly won't let me back on anymore. But I will tell you something. I could have said, well, it's not all of me, it's just these ribs. It's not all of me, it's, it's just this thumb. The rest of me is okay, everything is just fine. But I want to tell you, when those ribs hurt, everything hurts. I didn't realize how much that affects you. I couldn't sleep in a bed for about a month. I had to sleep in a recliner because I couldn't get out of bed once I got in. One thing affects everything. When one part of the body is hindered, the whole body doesn't get to do what the body is supposed to do. It doesn't mean that the body dies. It doesn't die, but it doesn't function the way it's supposed to function unless every part of it does its share. So what is it that keeps us from being what it is that God wants us to be? Let me share some hindrances to you. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20, Isaiah wrote, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to the God who cannot save. I want to tell you, we have the hindrance of ignorance when we stay away from the Word of God. Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and do not see, who have ears and do not hear. That's Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, and then verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, now you would think he would say, I'm going to reject you. But listen to what he says. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Taking time in the Word of God isn't just for me, it's for the generations that come after me. You and I are not just living for ourselves. I want to tell you a secret. If you don't remember anything else that I tell you, the rest of the time that I speak, if you remember this, it will help. Your life is not about you. You are put in this world for you. And can I tell you that God didn't save you just so you could get to heaven? If God only saved you so that you could get to heaven, He should have killed you the moment you were baptized. You were as saved as you would ever be. You didn't even have a chance to think a bad thought. You come up, zap, God gives you a stroke, you're done, and that's it. You go straight to heaven. Wouldn't that be great? Except that's not why he saved you. 
God saved you to save people. He saved you to change people. He saved you because there are children that you are raising who really desperately need to know God in a society that's moving further and further away from Him. He saved you because there are neighbors who live next door to you whose destiny is awful unless they have somebody who's a light that lives right next door. He saved you because He knew you could make a difference in the world. I can't do that if I move away from the Word of God. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever makes that way will not know peace. They do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Amos chapter 3, verse 10. Well, you could go on and on and on. How do we defeat that enemy? Listen to David. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Listen to Paul in his letter to Timothy. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. My hindrance would be my lack of knowledge, and it's self-inflicted, guys. Everybody can open up the Bible. Everybody can open up the Bible, and somebody says, I don't know Greek, you don't need to. I don't know Hebrew, you don't need to. If you don't know how to read, you need to learn. But I'm going to tell you, even if you don't know how to read, you can listen. And you can learn from that. I would ask you to look in that. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. John chapter 20, verse 31. Get into the Word of God. Make a difference in the life of somebody else. There's another hindrance that comes to us, is that when we read it, sometimes we really don't believe it. Do you remember John chapter 8, verse 24, where Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins? I need to believe it. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to God, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. A hindrance to us is that while I read it, I'm not sure that I actually believe it. I want to come back to something I said a few moments ago in John chapter 20. These things are written that you might believe. There's something about the Word of God. There's something about the Word of God that compels you to believe it. A number of years ago, there were six Chinese doctoral students who came to Houston, Texas, while I was preaching at the Memorial Congregation. They came to the congregation. They were from Communist China. They were atheists. They only believed in the state. But when I asked them if they would be willing to study the Bible, they said yes. And I thought, wow, that's great. So my first meeting with them, I decided that since they didn't believe the Bible, that I would use all the classical arguments about existence of God. So I, I talked about the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. I didn't use those words. But I used that, the argument from design, the argument from existence, the argument of cause and effect. I used all of those arguments with them, and I thought this will be compelling to this group of people who don't believe in God. And I might as well have been speaking Swahili. They stared at me like, you poor man. And I realized I had made absolutely no progress with them at all, and then it hit me. And I said, look, I don't think we made much progress today, but could you come back next week, and I want to do something a little different. And they said, sure, we'll come back next week. These were all brilliant people. Most of them were working on their second doctorate degree. By the way, they were in the United States to learn how to clone people, because that's what China needs is more people. But 
But they were learning how to do that, and they were learning it in the U.S. I found that interesting. I did a lot of praying between that first week and the second week, and I thought about what John said, that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I never again tried to convince them that God existed. Here's what I did. The next week, I had them read with me the story of the prodigal son. They'd never heard it before. It's amazing the impact that that makes to people who've never heard it before. They had all kinds of questions. Why did the father take him back? If I had been that father, I know what I would have done. I can't believe that he did it. Uh, and, and why would the boy go about doing that? It's a shameful thing. They had all these questions. And I said, listen, when God is telling that story, when Jesus is telling that story, he's telling that, that that father is what God is like. And that boy is what we are like. And God forgives him and brings him back. And he's his child. They said, that's astounding. They had, we talked for a long, long time about it. They said, can we come back next week? Do you have another story? I said, sure. And I went through the parables of Jesus with them and just had them read them. At the end of six weeks, I got an email that said, we're not going to be able to be there that Sunday. And my heart kind of sunk until I read the rest of the email, which said, we have someone we have to move to another city, but we'll be back next week if that's okay with you. And we want you to know that we've fallen in love with the God you're talking about. I hadn't tried to prove his existence at all. I just had them read the Word of God. And they didn't know whether they really believed in him yet, but they were in love with who that God was. We kept reading stories. Their questions kept getting stronger. I remember the day that they came and they said, we believe not only that God exists, we believe that Jesus Christ is his Son, and we believe that we need to be baptized. But we have a question. We're from communist China. You know that. We have family back home. If the government finds out that we've become Christians, they could imprison our family. Or they could simply bring us back to China and put us in jail and possibly take our lives. And we want to know is this worth it? Now, I want to tell you that I had never had anybody ask me that question who was really in danger of losing their life for a decision to follow Christ. So I prayed with them before I answered the question. And I said, you're the only one who can answer that question for yourself. But for me, yes. If it costs me everything I have, if it costs me my life, it's worth it. We baptize them. We have sent missionaries back to China at communist government expense. I'm so thankful for that. But you know how it happened? Just the Word of God. Just the Word of God. Wasn't trying to prove the existence of God anymore. There's something about the Word of God that makes you want that God to exist. And then ultimately to believe that He really does. We need to be people who fight against ignorance. We need to be people who fight against unbelief. Then there's another hindrance that gets in our way. Remember Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I know your works, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but since you're neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. That's what he says, Revelation 3. He's talking to the church at Laodicea. One of the hindrances that we have is just our apathy. 
I don't know, I don't care, that's just the way it is, and the world is never going to change. Doesn't do any good to knock on doors because nobody is going to know. It doesn't do any good to ask people to study the Bible because nobody cares. It doesn't do any good to come here and worship because, in fact, it really doesn't change anything from day to day. Apathy. The belief that nothing ever really makes a difference. We have to fight that. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a wise man building his house upon the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it stood, for it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man building his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. My time is really past, but let me just move on one more thing, and I promise I'm going to quit. We have to remove the hindrance of sin. We looked at it in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. You and I struggle with sin. If we don't admit that, we're wrong. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, which means keeps on cleansing us from all sin. But it doesn't mean that we walk sinlessly. Listen, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. That's verse 8. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. That's verse 10. You and I sin. How do I overcome sin? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And when does that happen to me? For the non-Christian, it happens when we're buried in the death of Christ and receive the benefits of his blood. Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ? That's what happened to us. We were buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we should walk in newness of life. I'm asking you if you've not done that to be baptized today. And if not, I'm asking you, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you're a baptized believer and your life has been filled with apathy, it's time to change that. If your life has been filled with sin, it's time to change that. Somebody says, but you don't know where I am. I don't. But God does. And I promise you, he can make a difference. And there's a moment in time that changed everything. I want to take you back just for a moment to a Friday. It's Friday and the disciples have fallen asleep while Jesus is praying in sweat and blood. It's Friday, and they come into that garden, and they take him with swords and staves and lead him back and forth across a series of mock trials in front of the Sanhedrin and others. It's Friday, and the soldiers take a crown of thorns, and they press it down on his head, put a reed scepter in his hand, and bow down and say, Hail, King of the Jews. It's Friday and a Roman soldier lays his body open with a cat of nine tails so that you can see beyond the skin into the muscle and tissue below. They beat him to the point that Isaiah says he's not recognizable. That's Friday. It's Friday and they put a cross on his back and they carry, make him carry it toward the cross and he feels the jarring of falling on the ground. Friday, somebody else carries that cross the rest of the way until they put him at the hill of Golgotha and beginning with the left hand, 
they nailed his hands to a cross. Cross his feet, turned them sideways and put a nail through the feet with the legs bent. It's Friday. It's Friday and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Friday and they say he saved others, himself he cannot save. It's Friday and the soldiers don't care. They're gambling over the only piece of clothing he can call his own. It's Friday and his disciples are scared and moving toward the edge of the crowd. It's Friday and his mama's crying at the foot of the cross. It's Friday. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Friday, and Jesus dies, really dies. And the angels in heaven are crying, and the angels in hell are laughing. But they don't know, it's just Friday, Sunday's coming. It's Friday and Satan believes that the one who was supposed to crush his head has finally been defeated and that he is one. It's Friday and they take him and put him in a tomb that doesn't belong to him. They roll a stone shut over it and they put soldiers in front of it to make sure nobody steals the body. But that's just Friday. Sunday's coming. And now it's Sunday. It's just about to dawn at the first day of the week and there's an earthquake. But that's not all that's shaking. An angel comes down and rolls the stone away and sits on it and the soldiers quake and become like dead men. It's Sunday and the angel says to the women, He is not here. He is risen. It's Sunday and the one who was slaughtered as the lamb led for our sins comes forth as the Lion of Judah and the Savior of the world. It's Sunday and everything has changed. It's the age of His power. It's the age of His presence. It's the age of His purpose. It's the age of His peace. It's Sunday. Everything has changed. You may be living in Friday. Your strength is gone. Your dreams have been shattered. Your hope is destroyed. And nothing has worked out right. It may be Friday, and the police have come to your door, and they have terrible news. It may be Friday, and the business that you've been building all of your life has just been made obsolete by new technology, and you're facing bankruptcy. It may be Friday, and that's a bad day. But you and I know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. This is just Friday. Sunday's coming. And if you buried that person who's still holding your heart, Sunday's coming. And if it looks like you're going to lose your health, Sunday's coming. And everything that we've suffered in this life, everything that's happened to us in this life, doesn't matter. Because Sunday's coming. And when Sunday is here, it's worth everything. When Sunday is here, it's a great day. It's coming, guys. Between now and Sunday, if I'm living in Friday, I'm living for Sunday. I'm not going to give in to apathy. I'm not going to give in to ignorance. I'm not going to give in to sin. I'm not going to do it. 
Because no matter what this world throws at us, Sunday's coming. Don't miss Sunday. Start now while we stand and sing. Thank you for that very powerful lesson. <clears throat> if you're visiting with us again, we want to say we appreciate you being here with us. Um, it's a little different today. We're having a potluck dinner after the service, and our evening service is at 1 p.m. today. Um, we ask that you stay with us for, for both the, the dinner and the service. Um, before we uh, close, uh, singing number 937, if you haven't had a chance, please uh, uh, fill in your attendance cards and pass them to the center aisles, and they'll be picked up. And we'll, we'll uh, close the service uh, with number 937. 937. <clears throat> you are
Let's pray. Our blessed and glorious Father in heaven, Father, we are your children. We are humbled by your presence here among us this morning. We are so honored to be in your family, Father. Thank you so much for bringing this family together. Each one of us here in this building, we are blessed to know and to be united with in faith, Father. We are so grateful to have uh, an opportunity like this weekend to spend this time with one another, encouraging one another. We're thankful, Father, for our speaker who gives unto us your encouraging word. Father, we are, are grateful to you for the blessings that you shower upon us every day. Help us to recognize and see these blessings, Father, even if we are living in a Friday moment. Help us, Father, to, to recognize that, as Mr. Watkins said earlier, that Sunday is coming. Father, we are grateful to you for each blessing, most of all, our spiritual blessings in Christ. We're grateful to you for his death, his resurrection, Father, and the life that we can have through him. Father, help us to live every day for Jesus and through Jesus. Father, as we are about to depart from this place, in this auditorium, please be with us as we gather to spend more time with one another. 